On October 18th, the Washington Post hosted the third edition of its Addiction in America live interview series, which convenes policymakers, researchers, and healthcare experts to examine the country's opioid crisis. The program came just days after the release of a groundbreaking investigation by the Washington Post and CBS 60 Minutes, which detailed ties between the drug industry, Congress, and the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. In this segment, Faces of the Opioid Epidemic, we look at the toll the epidemic has taken on families' lives and those of their loved ones. Todd and Dory Berkey of Lycoming County, Pennsylvania, an area hard hit by the opioid crisis, share the story of losing their son to addiction with Washington Post reporters Lenny Bernstein and Alice Lee. Let's listen. Morning, everyone. Um, I'm Lenny Bernstein. I'm a health and uh, medicine reporter here at the Washington Post. Um, I'm going to introduce to you today uh, Todd and Dorig Berkey. Uh, they're the parents of Thad Berkey, uh, who was one of the uh, estimated 62,000 people who died of a drug overdose in 2016. And Alice Lee, uh, the Washington Post video journalist who made that remarkable video that you just saw. Um. <clears throat> uh, Todd and Dory, can you tell us a little bit about how Thad's uh, addiction began, that Thad's painkiller addiction began, and how it progressed? Well, in <clears throat> January of uh, 2015, he had an injury, broke his hand and foot, and uh, we took him to the emergency room and everything, and you know, he got prescribed painkillers. And uh, we had uh, no idea that he got addicted to painkillers. Now, in around October of 2015, his mom found Suboxone in, the, in his room. And I, uh, of course, I was upset. I yelled at him and I said, Dad, this is what inmates try to have sent into the prison system. And then that's when he told us about his addiction to uh, painkillers. And, uh, you know, I looked it up online, educated myself a little bit about it. And then I went back upstairs to the top of the steps and yelled over to Thad, told him, you know, Thad, I'm sorry, I love you. He was on Suboxone in an attempt to, uh, to beat his painkiller addiction. Yeah. I said, Thad, I love you. If anything ever happened to you, I wouldn't want to live. And then, uh, of course, we had him in rehab a couple different, two different times at Marworth. And uh, the first time he went to rehab, he was doing real good, was real excited, wanted to get clean, wanted to be good. And was really good about going to meetings and, and, and everything. And, uh, but first time he went to, to rehab, he was able to get uh, Vivitrol, um, the blocker. It's a long-acting blocker. Mm -hmm. But then it only lasts for like 30 days or so. And I called around to different places, couldn't find any place to subscribe in that. And uh, I called a place in Milton, but they only prescribed patients that went through treatment at White Deer Treatment Center. So I wasn't able to get him a thing, and eventually he relapsed. Dory, um, relapse is common. When, when Thad came out of rehab, were you hopeful? What did you think might happen? Well, 
I thought this was just a bump in the road. Um, because he really, he really wanted to get better. And um, he just, I mean, it, it, is, it was just totally out of our family, our realm of like this, I'm just going to say it, it just doesn't happen to us. And, uh, and when he did relapse, what, cl what clues did you have? What did you, what did you see? Just some behaviors that I just said, you know, you're reminding me of when. And he's like, no, 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 no. When he relapsed, was he back to using pain pills or was he using street drugs or what, what finally turned out to happen? When, uh, when he didn't have pain pills, that's when, or Suboxone, that's when he turned to heroin. Now the, you know, he relapsed, so we took him back again to Marworth. And, uh, and then he didn't do as good when he came home as he did the first time. He wasn't as excited. He had drug court coming up and had all the anxiety and, and everything. And, uh, and then like about three days before he would have had drug court. I think drug court would have been real good for him because it would have been held him accountable, would have been structured. He would have had you know, structure in his life because he'd have to go to so many meetings, so many uh, self groups, help groups, uh, you know, and, and be held accountable. And, uh, but three days before uh, he would have had drug court is when I woke up to my wife screaming in the morning, Thad, wake up, Thad, wake up. And I went over, you know, as soon, as soon as that happened, it's like I knew what was going on in my head. You know, I jumped out of bed, I grabbed the phone, dialed 911, ran to my son's room. And he was uh, not breathing and he was blue, lying on the bed. And I had the phone in one hand, I grabbed him, drug him to the floor and started chest compressions. And then the emergency, you know, police and emergency personnel arrived and, you know, uh, um, my wife went and got Narcan before they arrived and applied that and that didn't do anything. That's the antidote that reverses an overdose. Yes. Didn't work. No. And uh, emergency personnel worked on it for 45 minutes while me and my wife sat downstairs in the kitchen. And then finally they came down and said that there was nothing more that they could do. So we had to sit there and wait on the coroner to pronounce our son dead. And then uh, we went in another room while they were bringing his body down. And what had he um, overdosed on? Heroin. Heroin. And do you know how he obtained it? Um, not exactly. Dory, the, um, the grief group that we, well, can you tell us about the, the year since Thad has died? Um, sort of a ridiculous question, but what has, what has the year been like for you? Well, um, my sister-in-law shared with us about a group she went to years ago out in Indiana um, called Grief Share. And it just so happened that a local church had 
one that had started up and um, we, it's like a 13 week thing. And um, we jumped in like about week four. That was 11 days gone. And um, it, it was really, that was really helpful to go through the, I don't know if instruction's a good word, just to go through with other people, you know, through their grief and just talk about it. And um, it's a faith-based program, so that was a good fit for us. And, um, you know, as we went along, I thought, okay, so I think, I think we're doing okay here with our grief thing doing things the right way. And then we um, went to an event in Williamsport, Saving Lives for Zachary, and uh, met David Bauer. And he told us about um, a group that meets, and we've been going monthly there. And it's, you know, we cry together, we laugh together. But we all had, unfortunately, one thing in common. <laughs> Have you, in, in talking with all these folks, have you learned anything about um, grief, about moving on, about this particular way of, of losing a child? There's no, there's no way, I think, to describe losing a child, but in this epidemic, um, have, has it been helpful to meet with other families? Yes, yes. And one thing I learned right away was just that there's nothing that I could have done. In the beginning, you're, you're pretty guilty about, about the death, but they're telling you you couldn't have. Right. There's nothing I could do from May 21st, 1994 to October 2nd, 2016. Nothing I could have done to change. And that's hard as a mom. <laughs> Alice, you spent uh, months on this video, um, went up to Williamsport, met with all these folks. Uh, you attended the grief group. Um, you have been with them at a 5K run walk afterwards. What was your ambition when you started and, and what did you find out? I think it was important, and this was something that we discussed early on, that we wanted to show the faces of the people who had really been impacted the most by this epidemic. Um, it's easy to talk about numbers, it's easy to talk about the statistics, but to really get to the heart of who this is hurting the most, I think was something that we wanted to showcase. And so when we first went down to Williamsport um, and met with Tina, she had told us about this grief therapy group, um, and it sounded like a good place to meet more families who, as Dory was saying, unfortunately shared um, the same thing in common, which was losing a loved one to this epidemic. Um, and so when we first went to the group therapy group, um, you know, it was in the backyard um, of the counselor's home. It was a beautiful evening. Uh, and it was just, yeah, it was heartbreaking hearing all of these stories and going to the 5K and 10K run and seeing how many people had been impacted in this community um, by this epidemic. And I'm actually curious, too, to hear 
I mean, when you guys, because you guys were also at the 5K, 10K run, were you taken by surprise by how many people this had impacted and touched, or was this something that you well, were aware of even as your own son was going through this? We, um, so last year was the first year that they did that 5K, 10K, and it happened to be probably about three weeks after Thad passed. And my sister, who lives in the Williamsport area, she said, hey, my friends want to start a team for Thad. So we had, there were probably 30, like my nephews, their friends, um, you know, family. Um, and I think last year, the first time ever, they had over 600 people at the, at the 5K, 10K thing. And um, so this year, you know, I, I think it surpassed that. And yes, I was surprised because everybody has a story. Whether it affects them direct, like as it did us, or it's a nephew, a cousin, a friend, grandchild. So. It seems like there's, there's no more than one degree of separation at this point uh, in the epidemic. If you don't know someone who has died personally, then you have a neighbor or a cousin or a nephew or someone who, who knows someone mm -hmm. who has died. Um, and, you know. and so many of the stories are the same about how it starts with painkillers. <laughs> you know, I've, I've heard so many stories like that, you know, that starts out with painkillers and it progresses to heroin or other other substances. Um, was he, his injury was a football injury or I remember what No, he, it was an accident. An accident. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then the painkillers were uh, prescribed at the hospital. Yeah. All right. Alice, would, would, did you, were you surprised by anything you found in doing the, the work on this? I think I was surprised by how many people were at the race, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, that did take me by, that did take me back a little bit. Um, I think especially when you're physically in that space and you're seeing everyone who's there and how many people have been impacted by it, it does, it is kind of, and you know, Williamsport, for people who don't know, it's the home of Little League Baseball. Mm -hmm. So you go there and, you know, there are statues of little kids who are playing baseball. It is as American pie as you can get. Um, and so it is kind of this disconcerting uh, environment to be in uh, while you see all these families who have been impacted by this epidemic. At the moment, uh there are three U.S. senators waiting to come out here and, and speak uh, on the opioid epidemic. Um, there are a whole bunch of folks here in, uh, from the D.C. area who may uh, be able, in their own corner of this world, to be able to do something. Um, as parents of someone who passed, who overdosed on, on opioids, um, what do you want them to do? Not speaking as policymakers or anything, what needs to be done to bend the curve on the opioid, opioid epidemic? Well, as, um, as people have seen from the uh, 60 Minutes episode, that one bill needs to change. And, and I, for the life of me, I can't understand why 
attorneys for the DEA switched sides, you know, and it's unethical, it's immoral, you know, for them to switch sides to be attorneys for the DEA and then be attorneys for the big drug companies. You know, that's just something I can't understand. And you're in the law enforcement world yourself. Yes. And I, when I was first told about it a couple months ago, you know, I thought, well, I'm against anything. You know, I, I work at a federal prison. I'm against anything that ties the hands of another federal law enforcement agency to effectively do their job. How about treatment? Was it difficult, Dory, for uh, Thad to get treatment? Uh, we've already pointed out that it wasn't the most effective, although relapse is such a difficult subject. Right. Um, our daughter researched, because we were like so naive. We didn't know how to do anything. You just go like, okay, find them a place to go. And we're like, okay. But our daughter is quite the researcher and she found Marworth and, you know, um, Thad loved, loved to lift weights and he was at the gym every day and um, she said, Mom, I found one that has a, a, a little gym, you know, and, and so we, everything just fell into place and, um, you know, it wasn't terribly far from our home and um, so we're just, you know, wish the end results would have been better. Was there a reason? Do you have any reason why uh, you think uh, that relapsed twice? I, I, now I think maybe the anxiety of his upcoming um, just drug court, maybe being nervous about what if I fail? What if, because he had friends who let, he met you know, through meetings and things that, you know, we're going through it or maybe, and maybe had um, not done well and failed and he didn't want to go back to jail. And Todd, I, I see you actually have a tattoo of that. Do you mind showing that? Yeah, this is a, a portrait I had done of my son. Um, I think in December and then this was the first tattoo that he had. This is uh, the crest for Bern, Switzerland. That's where my great-grandfather came from. And then this I had done in uh, June 28th, I think. And he had this on his back. So I wanted this arm to represent my son. So, you know, my son's always with me in my heart. And he's here on my arm. And... Uh, He's here, his ashes, some of his ashes are in here. This is what we take uh, when we travel places so that our son's always with us. Sometimes we take this if we're going to somewhere to spread his ashes, like at his grandparents' house, different places in Pennsylvania, and out in Indiana at the lakes where he liked to go. Um, but when he passed, there was like about a little bit left in here. So I dumped that out and I put some of his ashes inside of it. The pre-workout uh, drink. And he didn't like to travel so much. So it's kind of one of those, <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> At least for me. <laughs> uh, 
that's the all the time we have for this session. Um, Todd and Dory, I really want to thank you so much for coming down and speaking. Um, your story is, is heartbreaking and hopefully effective in, in, in the war on opioids. And Alice, the video obviously speaks for itself. So uh, I'm going to turn this over to my colleague, Mike DeBonis. Uh, he's going to uh, ask questions in the next panel. And thank you all very much for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.